This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I've got a nice bedtime story for you tonight from the author of Anne of Green Gables. And uh, before I get to the story, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, where uh, you can go and Pudge a couple bucks a month for an ad-free version of the show. Alright, so this week's patrons. Alina Miller, Dory Richens, Inez, and David Beaufort. Thank you all so, so much for 
donating and being a part of making this show. It really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful website where you can go and directly support creators of the work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, uh, maybe it's become part of your nightly routine, then consider going to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And like I said, um, at $2 a month, you get a totally ad-free version of the show that releases every Sunday, just like the regular podcast. And at $5 a month, you get access to the poetry feed, which is over 50 extra episodes of poetry readings. They're super rhythmic and nice, perfect to snooze to. But regardless of how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making the show, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight I have um, a really beautiful book by L.M. Montgomery, who of course wrote Anne of Green Gables and uh, Anne of Avonlea, which was on the show a couple episodes ago. Um, there's just something about her writing that feels right before springtime comes. For myself, um, by the end of March, I start getting a little bit wary of the cold weather and really start looking forward toward spring. And for some reason, uh, L.M. Montgomery's work somehow reminds me of springtime. Maybe it's because all of her stories start with um, a big change in a young person's life. Um, I'm not sure, but it just feels fresh and new and lively and very childlike. It's really gorgeous writing, and um, Emily of the New Moon is... Uh, the first couple of chapters, they can be a little sad, if I'm being honest, um, but they're still beautiful, and uh, I really, really enjoyed reading it, so I hope you like this story, or I hope you make it even two pages in, and then go read it on your own when you're not trying to fall asleep, and uh, I guess I also hope you're asleep right now. And I've already bored you into a deep snooze. Well, anyways, tonight, Emily of the New Moon by L.M. Montgomery. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you.
Chapter 1 The House in the Hollow The house in the hollow was a mile from anywhere, so Maywood people said. It was situated in a grassy little dale, looking as if it had never been built like other houses, but had grown up there like a big brown mushroom. It was reached by a long green lane and almost hidden from view by an encircling growth of young birches. No other house could be seen from it, although the village was just over the hill. Ellen Green said it was the lonesomest place in the world and vowed that she wouldn't stay there a day if it wasn't that she pitied the child. Emily didn't know she was being pitied and didn't know what lonesomeness meant. She had plenty of company. There was father and Mike and saucy Sal. The wind woman was always around and there were the trees, Adam and Eve and the rooster pine and the friendly lady birches. And there was the flash too. She never knew when it might come, and the possibility of it kept her a thrill and expectant. Emily had slipped away in the chilly twilight for a walk. She remembered that walk very vividly all her life, perhaps because of a certain eerie beauty that was in it, perhaps because the flash came for the first time in weeks more likely because of what happened after she came back from it. It had been a dull, cold day in early May, threatening to rain but never raining. Father had lain on the sitting room lounge all day. He had coughed a good deal, and he had not talked much to Emily, which was a very unusual thing for him. Most of the time, he lay with his hands clasped under his head and his large, sunken, dark blue eyes fixed dreamily and unseeingly on the cloudy sky that was visible between the boughs of the two big spruces in the front yard. Adam and Eve, they always called those spruces because of a whimsical resemblance Emily had traced between their position with reference to a small apple tree between them and that of Adam and Eve and the tree of knowledge in the old-fashioned picture in one of Ellen Green's books. The tree of knowledge looked exactly like the squat little apple tree, and Adam and Eve stood up on either side as stiffly and rigidly as did the spruces. Emily wondered what father was thinking of, but she never bothered him with questions when his cough was bad. She only wished she had somebody to talk to. Ellen Green wouldn't talk that day either. She did nothing but grunt, and grunts meant that Ellen was disturbed about something. She had grunted last night after the doctor had whispered to her in the kitchen, and she had grunted when she gave Emily a bedtime snack of bread and molasses. Emily did not like bread and molasses, 
but she ate it because she did not want to hurt Alan's feelings. It was not often that Alan allowed her anything to eat before going to bed, and when she did, it meant that for some reason or other she wanted to confer a special favor. Emily expected the grunting attack would wear off overnight, as it generally did, but it had not, so no company was to be found in Ella. Not that there was a great deal to be found at any time. Douglas Starr had once, in a fit of exasperation, told Emily that Ellen Green was a fat, lazy old thing of no importance, and Emily whenever she looked at Alan after that, thought the description fitted her to a hair. So Emily had curled herself up in the ragged, comfortable old wing chair and read The Pilgrim's Progress all the afternoon. Emily loved The Pilgrim's Progress. Many a time had she walked the straight and narrow path with Christian and Christiana, although she never liked Christiana's adventures half as well as Christian's. For one thing, there was always such a crowd with Christiana. She had not half the fascination of that solitary, intrepid figure who faced all alone the shadows of the dark valley and the encounter with Apollyon. Darkness and hobgoblins were nothing when you had plenty of company. But to be alone, ah, Emily shivered with the delicious horror of it. When Ellen announced that supper was ready, Douglas Starr told Emily to go out to it. I don't want anything tonight. I'll just lie here and rest. And when you come in again, We'll have a real talk, Elfkin. He smiled up at her, his old, beautiful smile with the love behind it that Emily always found so sweet. She ate her supper quite happily, though it wasn't a good supper. The bread was soggy and her egg was underdone. And for a wonder, she was allowed to have both Saucy Sal and Mike sitting one on each side of her, and Alan only grunted when Emily fed them wee bits of bread and butter. Mike had such a cute way of sitting up on his haunches and catching the bits in his paws, and Saucy Sal and her trick of touching Emily's ankle with an almost human touch when her turn was too long in coming. Emily loved them both, but Mike was her favorite. He was a handsome, dark gray cat with huge owl-like eyes, and he was so soft and fat and fluffy. Sal was always thin. No amount of feeding put any flesh on her bones. Emily liked her, but never cared to cuddle or stroke her because of her thinness. Yet there was sort of a weird beauty about her that appealed to Emily. She was gray and white, very white and very sleek, 
with a long, pointed face, very long ears and very green eyes. She was a redoubtable fighter, and strange cats were vanquished in one round. The fearless little spitfire would even attack dogs and rout them utterly. Emily loved her cats. She had brought them up herself, as she proudly said. They had been given to her when they were kittens by her Sunday school teacher. A living present is so nice, she told Ellen, because it keeps on getting nicer all the time. But she worried considerably because Saucy Sal didn't have kittens. I don't know why she doesn't, she complained to Ellen Green. Most cats seem to have more kittens than they know what to do with. After supper, Emily went in and found that her father had fallen asleep. She was very glad of this. She knew he had not slept much for two nights, but she was a little disappointed that they were not going to have that real talk. Real talks with father were always such delightful things, but next best would be a walk, a lovely, all-by-your-lonesome walk through the gray evening of the young spring. It was so long since she had had a walk. You put on your hood and mind you scoot back if it starts to rain, warned Ellen. You can't monkey with colds the way some kids can. Why can't I? Emily asked rather indignantly. Why must she be debarred from monkeying with colds if other children could? It wasn't fair. But Ellen only grunted. Emily muttered under her breath for her own satisfaction. You were a fat old thing of no importance and slipped upstairs to get her head, rather reluctantly, for she loved to run bareheaded. She put the faded blue hood on over her long, heavy braid of glossy, jet black hair and smiled chummily at her reflection in the little greenish glass. The smile began at the corners of her lips and spread over her face in a slow, subtle, very wonderful way, as Douglas Starr often thought. It was her past mother's smile, the thing that had caught and held him long ago when he had first seen Juliet Murray. It seemed to be Emily's only physical inheritance from her mother. And all else, he thought, she was like the stars, and her large, purplish-gray eyes, with their very long lashes and black brows, and her high, white forehead, too high for beauty, and the delicate modeling of her pale, oval face and sensitive mouth, and the little ears that were jointed just a wee bit to show that she was kin to the tribes of Alfland. I'm going for a walk with the wind woman, dear, said Emily. I wish I could take you too. Do you ever get out of that room, I wonder? The wind woman is going to be out in the fields tonight. 
She's tall and misty, with thin, gray, silky clothes blowing all about her, and wings like a bat's. Only you can see through them, and shining eyes like stars looking through her long, loose hair. She can fly, but tonight she will walk with me all over the fields. She's a great friend of mine, the Wind Woman is. I've known her ever since I was six. We're old, old friends, but not quite so old as you and I, little Emily in the glass. We've been friends always, haven't we? With a blown kiss to little Emily in the glass, Emily out of the glass was off. The wind woman was waiting for her outside, ruffling the little spears of striped grass that were sticking up stiffly in the bed under the sitting room window, tossing the big boughs of Adam and Eve, whispering among the misty green branches of the birches, teasing the rooster pine behind the house. It really did look like an enormous, ridiculous rooster with a huge, bunchy tail and head thrown back to crow. It was so long since Emily had been out for a walk that she was half crazy with the joy of it. The winter had been so stormy and the snow so deep that she was never allowed out. April had been a month of rain and wind, so on this May evening, she felt like a released prisoner. Where should she go? Down the brook, or over the fields to the spruce barrens? Emily chose the latter. She loved the spruce barrens, away at the further end of the long, sloping pasture. That was a place where magic was made. She came more fully into her fairy birth right there than in any other place. Nobody who saw Emily skimming over the bare field would have envied her. She was little and pale and poorly clad. Sometimes she shivered in her thin jacket. Yet a queen might have gladly given a crown for her visions, her dreams of wonder. The brown, frosted grasses under her feet were velvet piles. The old, mossy, gnarled, half-dead spruce tree, under which she paused for a moment to look up into the sky, was a marble column in a palace for the gods. The far, dusky hills were the ramparts of a city of wonder. And for companions, she had all the fairies of the countryside, for she could believe in them there. The fairies of the white clover and satin catkins, the little green folk of the grass, the elves of the young fir trees, sprites of wind and wild fern and thistledown. Anything might happen there. Everything might come true. And the barrens were such a splendid place in which to play hide-and-seek with the wind woman. She was so very real there. If you could just spring quickly enough around a little cluster of spruces, 
only you never could. You would see her as well as feel her and hear her. There she was. That was the sweep of her gray cloak. No, she was laughing up in the very top of the taller trees. The chase was on again. Till, all at once, it seemed as if the wind woman were gone, and the evening was bathed in a wonderful silence, and there was a sudden rift in the curdled clouds westward, and a lovely, pale, pinky-green lake of sky with a new moon in it. Emily stood and looked at it with clasped hands and her little black head upturned. She must go home and write down a description of it in the yellow account book where the last thing written had been, Mike's biography. It would hurt her with its beauty until she wrote it down. Then she would read it to father. She must not forget how the tips of trees on the hill came out like fine black lace across the edge of the pinky green sky. And then, for one glorious supreme moment, came the flash. Emily called it that, although she felt that the name didn't exactly describe it. It couldn't be described, not even to Father, who always seemed a little puzzled by it. Emily never spoke of it to anyone else. It had always seemed to Emily, either since she could remember, that she was very, very near to a world of wonderful beauty. Between it and herself hung only a thin curtain. She could never draw the curtain aside. But sometimes, just for a moment, a wind fluttered it, and then it was as if she had caught a glimpse of the enchanting realm beyond. Only a glimpse and heard a note of unearthly music. This moment came rarely, went swiftly, leaving her breathless with the inexpressible delight of it. She could never recall it, never summon it, never pretend it, but the wonder of it stayed with her for days. It never came twice with the same thing, Tonight, the dark boughs against that far-off sky had given it. It had come with a high, wild note of wind in the night, with a shadow wave over a ripe field, with a gray bird lighting on her windowsill in a storm, with the singing of holy, holy, holy in church, with a glimpse of the kitchen fire when she had come home on a dark autumn night, with the spirit-like blue of ice palms on a twilight pane, with a felicitous new word when she was writing down a description of something. And always when the flash came to her, Emily felt that life was a wonderful, mysterious thing of persistent beauty. She scuttled back to the house in the hollow, through the gathering twilight, all agog to get home and write down her description before the memory picture of what she had seen grew a little blurred 
she knew just how she would begin it. The sentence seemed to shape itself in her mind. The hill called to me, and something in me called back to it. She found Ellen Green waiting for her on the sunken front doorstep. Emily was so full of happiness that she loved everything at that moment, even fat things of no importance. She flung her arms around Ellen's knees and hugged them. Ellen looked down gloomily into the rapt little face, where excitement had kindled a faint wild rose flush, and said with a ponderous sigh, do you know that your pa has only a week or two more to live? Chapter 2 A Watch in the Night Emily stood quite still and looked up at Ellen's broad red face, as still as if she had been suddenly turned to stone. She felt as if she had. She was as stunned as if Ellen had struck her a physical blow. The color faded out of her little face and her pupils dilated until they swallowed up the irids and turned her eyes into pools of blackness. The effect was so startling that even Ellen Green felt uncomfortable. I'm telling you this because I think it's high time you was told, she said. I've been at your pa for months to tell you, but he's keep putting it off and off. I says to him, says I, you know how hard she takes things, and if you drop off sudden someday, it'll most kill her if she hasn't been prepared. It's your duty to prepare her. And he says, says he, there's time enough yet, Ellen. But he's never said a word. And when the doctor told me last night that the end might come at any time now, I just made up my mind that I'd do what was right and drop a hint to prepare you. Lord have mercy, child. Don't look like that. You'll be looked after. Your ma's people will see to that on account of the Murray pride, if for no other reason. They won't let one of their own blood starve or go to strangers, even if they have always hated your pa like poison. You'll have a good home, better than you ever had here. You needn't worry a mite. As for your pa, you ought to be thankful to see him at rest. He's been dying by inches for the last five years. He's kept it from you, but he's been a great sufferer. Folks say his heart broke when your ma died. It came on him so suddenly. She was only sick three days. That's why I want you to know what's coming, so you won't be all upset when it happens. For mercy's sake, Emily Birdstar, don't stand there staring like that. You give me the creeps. You ain't the first child that's been left an orphan, and you won't be the last. 
Try and be sensible. And don't go pestering your pa about what I've told you. Mind that. Come you in now, out of the dam, and I'll give you a cookie before you go to bed. Ellen stepped down as if to take the child's hand. The power of motion returned to Emily. She must scream if Ellen even touched her now. With one sudden, sharp, bitter little cry, she avoided Ellen's hand, darted through the door, and fled off the dark staircase. Ellen shook her head and waddled back to her kitchen. Anyhow, I've done my duty, she reflected. He'd have just kept saying, time enough, and put it off till he was dead and then there'd be no managing her. She'll have time now to get used to it, and she'll brace up in a day or two. I will say for her, she's got spunk, which is lucky, from all I've heard of the Murrays. They won't find it easy to overcrow her. She's got a streak of their pride, too, and that'll help her through. I wish I dared send some of the Murray's word that he's dying, but I don't ask go that far. There's no telling what he'd do. Well, I've stuck on here to the last, and I ain't sorry. Not many women would have done it, living as they do here. It's a shame the way that child's been brought up, never even sent to school. Well, I've told him often enough what I've thought of it. It ain't on my conscience. That's one comfort. Here, you south thing. You get out. Where's Mike, too? Ellen could not find Mike for the very good reason that he was upstairs with Emily, held tightly in her arms as she sat in the darkness on her little cot bed. Amid her agony and desolation, there was a certain comfort in the feel of his soft fur and round velvety head. Emily was not crying. She stared straight into the darkness, trying to face the awful thing Ellen had told her. She did not doubt it. Something told her it was true. Why couldn't she die, too? She couldn't go on living without father. If I was God, I wouldn't let things like this happen, she said. She felt it was very wicked of her to say such a thing. Ellen had told her once before that it was the wickedest thing anyone could do to find fault with God. But she didn't care. Perhaps if she were wicked enough, God would strike her dead, and then she and father could keep on being together. But nothing happened. Only Mike got tired of being held so tightly and squirmed away. She was all alone now, with this terrible burning pain that seemed all over her, and yet was not out of the body. She could never get rid of it. She couldn't help it by writing about it, 
in the old yellow account book. She had written there about her Sunday school teacher going away and of being hungry when she went to bed and Dallin telling her she must be half crazy to talk of wind women and flashes. And after she had written down all about them, these things hadn't hurt her anymore. But this couldn't be written about. She could not even go to Father for comfort, as she had gone when she burned her hand so badly, picking up the red-hot poker by mistake. Father had held her in his arms all that night and told her stories and helped her to bear the pain. But Father, so Ellen had said, was going to die in a week or two. Emily felt as if Ellen had told her this years and years ago. It surely couldn't be less than an hour since she had been playing with the wind woman in the barrens and looking at the new moon in the pinky green sky. The flash will never come again. It can't, she thought. But Emily had inherited certain things from her fine old ancestors. The power to fight, to suffer, to pity, to love very deeply, to rejoice, to endure. These things were all in her, and looked out at you through her purplish-gray eyes. Her heritage of endurance came to her aid now, and bore her up. She must not let Father know what Ellen had told her. It might hurt him. She must keep it all to herself, and love Father, oh, so much, in the little while she could yet have him. She heard him cough in the room below. She must be in bed when he came up. She undressed as swiftly as her cold fingers permitted and crept into the little cot bed which stood across the open window. The voices of the gentle spring night called to her all unheeded. Unheard, the wind woman whistled by the eaves. For the fairies dwell only in the kingdom of happiness. Having no souls, they cannot enter the kingdom of sorrow. She lay there cold and tearless and motionless when her father came into the room. How very slowly he walked. How very slowly he took off his clothes. How was it she had never noticed these things before? but he was not coughing at all. Oh, what if Ellen were mistaken? What if a wild hope shot through her aching heart? She gave a little gasp. Douglas Starr came over to her bed. She felt his dearness as he sat down in the chair beside her in his old red dressing gown. Oh, how she loved him. There was no other father like him in all the world. There never could have been. So tender, so understanding, so wonderful. They had always been such chums. They had loved each other so much. It couldn't be that they were to be separated. 
Winkums, are you asleep? No, whispered Emily. Are you sleepy, small dear? No. No, not sleepy. Douglas Starr took her hand and held it tightly. Then we'll have our talk, honey. I can't sleep either. I want to tell you something. Oh, I know it. I know it, burst out Emily. Oh, father, I know it. Alan told me. Douglas Starr was silent for a moment. Then he said under his breath, The old fool, the fat old fool, as if Ellen's fatness was an added aggravation to her folly. Again, for the last time, Emily hoped. Perhaps it was all a dreadful mistake, just some more of Ellen's foolishness. Eh, it isn't true, is it, father? She whispered. Emily, child, said her father, I can't lift you up. I haven't the strength, but climb up and sit on my knee in the old way. Emily slipped out of bed and got on her father's knee. He wrapped the old dressing gown about her and held her close with his face against hers. Dear little child, little beloved Emilykin, it is quite true, he said. I meant to tell you myself tonight. And now that old absurdity of an Ellen has told you, brutally, I suppose, and hurt you dreadfully. She has the brain of a hen and the sensibility of a cow. May Jackal sit on her grandmother's grave. I wouldn't have hurt you, dear. Emily fought something down that wanted to choke her. Father, I can't. I can't bear it. Yes, you can, and will. You will live because there is something for you to do, I think. You have my gift, along with something I never had. You will succeed where I fail, Emily. I haven't been able to do much for you, sweetheart, but I've done what I could. I've taught you something, I think, in spite of Alan Green. Emily, do you remember your mother? Just a little, here and there, like lovely bits of dreams. You were only four when she died. I've never talked much to you about her. I couldn't. But I'm going to tell you all about her tonight. It doesn't hurt for me to talk of her now. I'll see her so soon again. You don't look like her, Emily. Only when you smile. For the rest, you're like your namesake, my mother. When you were born, I wanted to call you Juliet, too. But your mother wouldn't. She said if we called you Juliet, then I'd soon take to calling her mother to distinguish between you, and she couldn't endure that. She said her Aunt Nancy had once said to her, 
The first time your husband calls you mother, the romance of life is over. So we called you after my mother. Her maiden name was Emily Bird. Your mother thought Emily the prettiest name in the world. It was quaint and arch and delightful, she said. Emily, your mother was the sweetest woman ever made. His voice trembled and Emily snuggled close. I met her 12 years ago when I was a sub-editor of the Enterprise up in Charlottetown and she was in her last year at Queen's. She was tall and fair and blue-eyed. She looked a little like your Aunt Laura, but Laura was never so pretty. Their eyes were very much alike and their voices she was one of the Murrays from Blairwater. I've never told you much about your mother's people, Emily. They live up on the old North Shore at Blairwater on New Moon Farm. Always have lived there since the first Murray came out from the old country in 1790. The ship he came on was called the New Moon and he named his farm after her. It's a nice name. The new moon is such a pretty thing, said Emily, interested for a moment. There's been a Murray ever since at the new moon farm. They're a proud family. The Murray pride is a byword along the north shore, Emily. Well, they had some things to be proud of that cannot be denied, but they carried it too far. Folks call them the chosen people up there. They increased and multiplied and scattered all over. But the old stock at New Moon Farm is pretty well run out. Only your aunts, Elizabeth and Laura, live there now. And their cousin, Jimmy Murray. They never married. Could not find anyone good enough for a Murray. So it used to be said. Your Uncle Oliver and your Uncle Wallace live in Summerside. Your Aunt Ruth in Shrewsbury. And your Great Aunt Nancy at Priest Pond. Priest Pond. That's an interesting name. Not a pretty name like New Moon and Blairwater. But interesting, said Emily. Feeling father's arm around her, the horror had momentarily shrunk away. For just a little while, she ceased to believe it. Douglas Starr tucked the dressing gown a little more closely around her, kissed her black hair, and went on. Elizabeth and Laura and Wallace and Oliver and Ruth were old Archibald Murray's children. His first wife was their mother. When he was 60, he married again, a young slip of a girl who died when your mother was born. Juliet was 20 years younger than her half-family, as she used to call them. She was very pretty and charming, and they all loved her and petted her and were very proud of her. 
when she fell in love with me, a poor young journalist with nothing in the world but his pen and his ambition. There was a family earthquake. The Murray Prize couldn't tolerate the thing at all. I won't rake it all up. But things were said I could never forget or forgive. Your mother married me, Emily, and the New Moon people would have nothing more to do with her. Can you believe that? In spite of it, she was never sorry for marrying me. Emily put up her hand and patted her father's hollow cheek. Of course she wouldn't be sorry. Of course she'd rather have you than all the Murrays of any kind of moon. Father laughed a little, and there was just a note of triumph in his laugh. Yeah, she seemed to feel that way about it. And we were so happy. Oh, Emily Kim. There were never two happier people in the world. And you were the child of that happiness. I remember the night you were born in the little house in Charlottetown. It was in May, and a west wind was blowing silvery clouds over the moon. There was a star or two here and there. In our tiny garden, everything we had was small except our love and our happiness. It was dark and blossomy. I walked up and down the path between the beds of violets your mother had planted and prayed. The pale east was just beginning to glow like a rosy pearl when someone came and told me I had a little daughter. I went in, and your mother, white and weak, smiled just that dear, slow, wonderful smile I loved, and said, We've got the only baby of any importance in the world, dear. Just think of that. I wish people could remember from the very moment they were born, said Emily. It would be so very interesting. I dare say we'd have a lot of uncomfortable memories, said her father, laughing a little. It can't be very pleasant, getting used to living. No pleasanter than getting used to stopping it. But you didn't seem to find it hard, for you were a good wee kidlet, Emily. We had four more happy years, and then... Do you remember when your mother passed, Emily? I remember the funeral, Father. I remember it distinctly. You were standing in the middle of a room, holding me in your arms, and Mother was laying just before us in a long box. And you were crying, and I couldn't think why. And I wondered why Mother looked so white and wouldn't open her eyes. And I leaned down and touched her cheek. And somebody in the room said, poor little thing. And I was frightened and put my face down on your shoulder. Yes, I recall that. Your mother passed suddenly. But I don't think we'll talk about it. 
The Murrays all came to her funeral. The Murrays have certain traditions, and they live up to them very strictly. One of them is that nothing but candles shall be burned for light at new moon, and another is that no quarrel must be carried past the grave. They came when she was passed. They would have come when she was ill if they had known. I will say that much for them. And they behaved so well. Oh, very well indeed. They were not the Murrays of New Moon for nothing. Your Aunt Elizabeth wore her best black satin dress to the funeral. For any funeral but a Murray's, the second best one would have done. And they made no serious objection when I said your mother would be buried in the star plot at Charlottetown Cemetery. They would have liked to take her back to the old Murray burying ground in Blairwater. They had their own private burying ground, you know. No indiscriminate graveyard for them. But your Uncle Wallace handsomely admitted that a woman should belong to her husband's family in death as in life. And then they offered to take you and bring you up to give you your mother's place. I refused to let them have you then. Did I do right, Emily? Yes, 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 whispered Emily with a hug at every yes. I told Oliver Murray, it was he who spoke to me about you, that as long as I lived, I would not be parted from my child. He said, if you ever change your mind, let us know. But I did not change my mind, not even three years later when my doctor told me I must give up work. If you don't, I give you a year, he said. If you do, and live out of doors all you can, I give you three, or possibly four. He was a good prophet. I came out here, and we've had four lovely years together, haven't we, small dear one? Yes, oh yes. Those years and what I've taught you in them are the only legacy I can leave you, Emily. We've been living on a tiny income I have from a life interest that was left me in an old uncle's estate. An uncle who died before I was married. The estate goes to a charity now, and this little house is only a rented one. From a worldly point of view, I've certainly been a failure. But your mother's people will care for you. I know that. The Murray pride will guarantee so much, if nothing else. And they can't help loving you. Perhaps I should have sent for them before. Perhaps I ought to do it yet. But I have a kind of pride too. The stars are not entirely traditionless. And the Murrays said some very bitter things to me when I married your mother. Will I send to New Moon and ask them to come, Emily? No, said Emily, almost fiercely. She did not want anyone 
to come between her and father for the few precious days left. The thought was horrible to her. It would be bad enough if they had to come afterwards. But she would not mind anything much then. We'll stay together to the very end then, little Emily child. We won't be parted for a minute. And I want you to be brave. You mustn't be afraid of anything, Emily. Death isn't terrible. The universe is full of love. And spring comes everywhere. And in death, you open and shut a door. There are beautiful things on the other side of the door. I'll find your mother there. I've doubted many things, but I've never doubted that. Sometimes I've been afraid that she would get so far ahead of me in the ways of eternity that I'd never catch up. But I feel now that she's waiting for me. And we'll wait for you. We won't hurry. We'll loiter and linger till you catch up with us. I wish you could take me right through the door with you, whispered Emily. After a little while, you won't wish that. You have yet to learn how kind time is. And life has something for you. I feel it. Go forward to meet it fearlessly, dear. I know you don't feel like that just now, but you'll remember my words by and by. I feel just now, said Emily, who couldn't bear to hide anything from father, that I don't like God anymore. Douglas Starr laughed, the laugh Emily liked best. It was such a dear laugh. She caught her breath over the dearness of it. She felt his arms tightening round her. Yes, you do, honey. You can't help liking God. He is love itself, you know. You mustn't mix him up with Ellen Green's God, of course. Emily didn't know exactly what Father meant, but all at once she found that she wasn't afraid any longer, and the bitterness had gone out of her sorrow, and the unbearable pain out of her heart. She felt as if love was all about her and around her, breathed out from some great, invisible, hovering tenderness. One couldn't be afraid or bitter where love was, and love was everywhere. Father was going through the door. No, he was going to lift a curtain. She liked that thought better because a curtain wasn't as hard and fast as a door, and he would slip into that world of which the flash had given her glimpses. He would be there in its beauty, never very far away from her. She could bear anything if she could only feel that father wasn't very far away from her, just beyond that wavering curtain. Douglas Starr held her until she fell asleep, and then in spite of his weaknesses, 
he managed to lay her down in her little bed. She will love deeply. She will suffer terribly. She will have glorious moments to compensate, as I have had. As her mother's people deal with her, so may God deal with them, he murmured brokenly. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.